Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are back. We are continuing our journey through the seven deadly sins. Last time we touched base on this, we were uh, slogging it through gluttony. Knee deep. Yep. And now we are discussing a little something called greed, which works perfectly because if you're traveling through Dante's Inferno. Um, yes. I always have to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and it makes conversations about Dante's Inferno awkward. But, um, but yeah, the, the third circle of Dante's Inferno is, uh, is where the gluttonous uh, hang out. And the fourth circle is where the greedy hang out. To be more specific, this is the circle of avarice and uh, prodigality. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Dante is really down on greed. It's not like one of these sins like lust, which he has a lot of sympathy for. Well, because um, he's human. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, he has like he he has a lot of sympathy for some of the individuals he, he has encounters needs, in Inferno. Yeah, is what I'm getting to. He has he has needs, mm-hmm. but uh, when he encounters the greedy, uh, he's it's it's a lot harsher. He divides it up. You have the prodigal and the more typically miserly greedy. So the prodigal, they're reckless spenders. They're, it's coming in and it's and it's going out twice as fast. Uh, I think that's something we can all. Uh, if not relate to personally, we can uh, we can we definitely witness in the world around us. And then you have the uh, the, the truly greedy, the hoarders and the misers, the ones that uh, that take the money, hold the money, that are just in it for the money itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when Dante and his guide uh, Virgil show up in Inferno, first of all they're greeted by Plutus, which is the god of riches, with a little a little Pluto god of the underworld thrown in because you know the underworld underground that's where gold and silver come from. And he's bestial, he's full of rage, and he's babbling, and he's saying "Papi Satan, Papi Satan, Alipi," which is kind of just nobody. There's a lot of discussion about what in the, the heck that means. Yeah, I'm going to say like "Papi Satan" sounds a little "Papi Satan, Papi Satan." Yeah. Uh, Gibberish. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a sense like maybe it's something papal, because certainly there's a lot of discussion of sinful popes in uh, Inferno, and then Satan, of course. But uh, but this is actually one of the few instances where Satan is actually mentioned, because when you actually encounter the big uh, demon himself, mm-hmm. the bottom of Inferno, he's referred to as Lucifer. So anyway, back to these sinners. So you have the spendthrifts and the misers, and they're all, uh, first of all, they're all so shabby that you can't even recognize them. Like uh, Dante is all like, ah, I'm probably going to look around here. I'm going to know some people that I met and know from life. And is that the, your Italian accent? Uh, very mildly. mildly. Okay. You, your Italian is much better. And uh, Virgil's like, nah, you're not going to you're not going to recognize anybody because everyone's so twisted here from their lives, from their their earthly lives, uh, full of of greed and and overspending that, that you're just not going to be able to recognize. Is that them. part of the punishment? Um, I don't, it's not as much a part of the punishment. It's just kind of like the reality of the like the like spiritually, they're deformed from this They've life of grotesque. grief. They've become grotesque. Yeah, okay. the the punishment itself is that they have their. It's kind of a joust between the spendthrifts and the greedy. Uh, except instead of having like you know swords or spears or any kind of typical jousting equipment, they are rolling large objects against each other using only like their chests. And if you look at the illustrations provided by um, Gustave Doré, the large objects that they're jousting with are giant money bags. So if you imagine these oh, like okay. these hideous-looking, like naked people, and they're all sort of like pushing big money bags, rolling them around with their chest into each other, and arguing with each other, and calling each other's n- other names, and so there 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 are no demons um, staffed here to punish these guys. Uh, they provide their own punishment to each other. Okay, so it's like a scene from Eyes Wide Shut. Well, no. No. 
<laughs> well, you know, okay, maybe more accessible is the illustration that you sent me, and it showed a lucky cat oh, atop yes, a yes. mountain, and the mountain was, um, there was a little trail going mm-hmm. to the very top where the lucky uh, cat is perched, and there's uh, mice with big hunks of cheese weighing them down as they bring it to the uh, the lucky cat. Yes, I will. I will link to this in the the blog post that goes with this podcast in case you're interested in seeing that. But there there are many um, artistic interpretations. Now, if one goes into Dante's Purgatory, uh, and this again is the mountain that connects Earth to the uh, to heaven and that the lucky cat paradise. sits on. Well. You're, you're, you're complicating the matter with Lucky Cat at this point. There's no Lucky Cat in this thing. Okay. It's just a mountain. If you say that so. It connects Earth and hell beneath it okay. to the heavens above. And as you travel up the mountain, each terrace purges you of a sin so that you'll be clean enough to enter heaven. Mm-hmm. So the fifth terrace is where you would purge yourself of uh, all this greed. And you do it by li- lying face down on a hard rock floor, weeping and praying uh, until the greed has washed away from you. That's your punishment? Yeah, it's kind of... Oh, it's not a punishment, remember. It's a, it's a cleansing. It's okay. Penance. Well, it and seems kind of weak sauce. It is It is kind of weak sauce. I don't know. May, maybe Dante just wasn't bringing his A-game when thinking about greed. Yeah. I mean, he's really down on it, but uh, it's 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 not like they're like you know boiling rivers of blood and feces. They're just dudes uh, in hell pushing bags of money against right. each other and, and hear a lot of people praying. Or the so, eyes being sewn shut, as in with envy, right? That was yeah, one of the punishments. Yeah, yeah. And there's some ghastlier ones ahead. But um, let's look to Buddhism real quick. Again, before we get into the real science of all this, in Buddhism, greed, along with delusion slash ignorance and hate, is one of the three poisons at the heart of all suffering. So if you look at the center of the Tibetan Wheel of Life, the Wheel of Samsara, which we have an excellent interactive illustration of in the uh, How Stuff Works article, How Sky Burial Works, if, if you look at the center of this wheel, you'll find three animals, a pig, a cock, and a snake. And they are all biting each other's tails, forming a ring. And each of these three animals represents one of the three poisons. The snake is hate, the pig is delusion or ignorance, you see it referred to as, as either, and then the cock represents greed. It's interesting how in, in Tibetan Buddhism, greed is very central to everything that is wrong with life here on Earth. And just as a side note, some people are really into, like, crazy burgers. I think it would be it would be fascinating if someone were to concoct a burger that contains three meats, snake meat, pig meat, and rooster meat. And then you could have it be the... Um, the, the three-poison burger, or the, the burger that is the root of all suffering. Well, isn't there already the turducken? It's kind of like the turducken, except um, it's responsible for all of man's woes. Ah, okay, yeah. so it's more of a symbolic. Yeah, and it'd probably be a pretty heavy lunch, too. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm just throwing that out there if anyone wants to create such a blasphemy. Or if, if uh, n- you know, next Thanksgiving when that rolls around, yeah. you can take your turducken, which is a turkey, chicken, and uh, duck all rolled together, right? Mm-hmm. And you can offer it up as a way to consume the sins of the past year. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that would go over really well at Thanksgiving table. Yeah. You know? People don't think about that. So that's kind of the, uh, there's the religious introduction. And both of these examples are very down on the the idea of greed. But it is this poisonous thing. It is this this awful thing that, that distorts the soul and renders us unrecognizable in the afterlife that is responsible for all of this pain around us. But then there's another way of looking at it, right? Uh, well, more yeah, of a modern I mean, view, right? A more uh, materialistic view. Are you talking about Gordon Gecko? Yes. Read from us from the book of uh, of Gecko. All right, Gordon Gecko, the character in Wall Street. We're talking t- high eighties here, nineteen eighty seven. Yes. 
And uh, I don't know if I can do a Michael Douglas voice. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, greed is good. Greed works. Greed is right. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, money, love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge in mankind. And greed, mark my words, will save not only Teldar paper, but the other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Greed um, also fights stains. That's yeah. that's right. I've got yeah. a greed stick at home. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is an idea uh, that isn't too far away from reality in uh, certain uh, eras of our existence. Certainly in the 1980s, you know, accumulation of wealth is something that a lot of people are concentrating on. And there is this idea that greed is this sort of evolutionary birthright that... Uh, we can't evolve without continuing to amass more and more and sort of step over each other in order to get to it. Yeah, I mean, and you can go with the, I mean, the classic argument that stuff like envy and greed, these are the, the motivating forces of ambition, and we need ambition in life. Like, on some level, greed maybe is good because I need things to live, right? I need a little money, and a little more is maybe even a little better. So I should want those things, right? Yeah, but it's the excess part, right? Yeah. Okay, so there's this guy named Andrew Lowe, and he is the Harris and Harris Group professor at MIT and the director of its laboratory for financial engineering. And in a 2009 interview with Freakonomics, he commented on the unprecedented era of wealth just recently that we have, right? Um, and he said that, quote, extended periods of prosperity act as an anesthetic in the human brain. Okay, so that's here's one reason why greed isn't so grand, right? Um, essentially, he's saying that all of us who were trading in on the real estate-based financial bubble uh, were in a, quote, drug-induced stupor that causes us to take risks that we know we should avoid. And he's saying, basically, that monetary gain, and we've, we've seen this before, certainly in the laboratory, is uh, it stimulates the same reward security as cocaine, and in both cases, again, we've talked about this all, you know, over and over in terms of the sins. Sins, dopamine is released into the nucleus accumbens. Um, and then the opposite of this, this is really mm-hmm. interesting, financial loss activates the same fight or flight circuitry as physical attacks, releasing adrenaline and cortisol in the bloodstream. So, I mean, here you have different sides of the coin, but certainly you've got dopamine and you've got adrenaline on the other side. Mm -hmm. And all of this is tied to finance. Okay, so it's kind of like, again, using the drug example, a young man takes cocaine and then writes a really horrible song. Or gets a real, or is really into an idea that is just dreadful. Uh huh. Likewise, the young man who has financial success for a short amount of time, during that success, everything's so great, he decides, I'm gonna buy a sailboat. Right? Right. That I mean, kind of thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow my money on this. I'm gonna spend it on this. I'm gonna do this because things are great. This couldn't possibly wear off. Uh, and, and of course, both individuals. Uh, quickly find that uh, the sensation does wear off. Right. I mean, basically, this is deadening that part of your brain that, well, I mean, you know, not literally deadening it, but certainly the part of your brain that is thinking about the long term is now mm-hmm. offline. And, you know, your short-term brain is like, hey, do whatever. Like, yeah. let's go buy a boat. That sounds like a great idea. Um, so it would make sense that uh, in terms of economics, uh, there's something happening in the brain that really feeds into greed. Okay, so... It, this question comes up, all right, uh, greed. Everybody is greedy to, to some extent or another, right? Um, but who could be the greediest jerks out there? 
Is there, is there an actual answer to that question? Who could be or who? Who might be. Who might be. Who might be. Like who out there in the world is the greediest jerk? Yeah. Well, one would, I mean, if you're going with the stereotype, you're looking at people like your Gordon Geckos, mm-hmm. like your Scrooge McDucks, like, you know, the individuals that have so much, it's an addiction, you know, like the money, the money unto itself is an addiction. Okay. So yeah. bingo, wealth corrupting, yes. right? It, you, and you're right. This is, uh, you know, somewhat of a cliche, but there were some scientists who decided to put this to the test or rather psychologists. Paul Piff of the University of California at Berkeley, he conducted seven different studies, seven different uh, scenarios, really, testing out socioeconomic levels and ethics, Mm -hmm. wondering if, indeed, wealth corrupts. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of them because I think that they're interesting. Um, But I should point out that all seven scenarios, the, the overwhelming evidence is that people with higher socioeconomic levels tend to have uh, dodgy ethics, or that, okay. that was the, the conclusion that was drawn from this. Um, there was a study in which uh, uh, Piff and his team monitored traffic at a four-way stop in San Francisco, and they noted all the makes and the mo- models of automobiles, because that's a really good indicator of your socioeconomic level usually, right? Right. Um, so guess who more often than not cut the other drivers off? The fancy cars. Fancy cars. I mean, overwhelmingly. Okay. So then there's another study that they did, and this was uh, they had test takers asked to imagine themselves being very rich or very poor, and then given an opportunity to take candy from a jar that would next be delivered to children in another lab. <laughs> so like really like taking candy from from a baby. Right? Uh, see, all I can think of is the Simpsons episode where um – uh, well, of course, Mr. Burns is another, I mean, if not one oh, of the yeah. classic examples of the the stereotypically rich, miserly, awful person who's been totally corrupted by wealth. But there's an episode, of course, where he, he actually steals or attempts to steal candy from a baby. Well, right, there you go. Yeah. He, he, in this um, study, certainly would have borne out the results. But so, again, here, here you see the people who are imagining themselves as very rich somehow distancing themselves from their action and saying... And taking actually more candy than the other people who imagine themselves is very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, seven of these different scenarios, uh, and you'd have to have many more studies in order to have more conclusive data on this, I think. But I, I think at least it gives us an idea of the direction yeah. <laughs> of, of what happens when you are ex- uh, exposed to extreme wealth and the sort of distancing that you experience. You know, I'm not sure the... The lab full of babies or children actually need that candy, though. I mean, well, I have to say, I thought that too, because I thought, well, I might be like, hey, you know what? Those Tootsie Rolls, that kid doesn't need it. Nobody knows to go to the dentist. And And what uh, kind of candy is it? Because there's there's candy and there's candy. Like if it's if it's like um, you know dental office bank Mm -mm. suckers or yeah candy corn, then by all means let the children have it. But if it's upscale candy that's clearly designed for a more sophisticated adult palate. Then, then I'm not sure <laughs> taking it is really the bad thing. I, I agree. I agree. Um, but uh, there, there's this evolutionary psychologist, and he's a consumer researcher, and his name is Vladis Griskevicius of the University of Minnesota. And he says this work is important because it suggests that people often act unethically, not because they are desperate and in the dumps, but because they feel entitled and they want to get ahead. Okay. So that well, could be uh, that's a valid exactly point. what I just did. I, I laid out my entitlement for the fancy candy. That the, that it, this candy would be lost on these children, and therefore, I'm re- I, a I'm doing them a favor because they don't need it, and b 
I am the intended audience for this candy. So I, I've already I've already rationalized stealing candy from a baby. It's a it's a great day in my life. <sighs> you know what? All your gold rings with your diamonds were kind of shining pretty <laughs> brightly. Can you kind of just take a couple off there? <laughs> Mr. Moneybags. Um, okay, so what is the opposite of greed? Well, not necessarily opposite, but uh, a reaction that you might have to greed. Revulsion? Revulsion, a sense of injustice, right? Yeah, because we, we were discussing this the other day. Like, like, there's something particularly foul about greed, especially when we, I mean, well, pretty much only when we glimpse it in others, because when we glimpse it in ourselves, we tend to, like everything else, we tend to find uh, more enlightened ways of, of understanding it or lying to ourselves about it, you know? But when you see greed in another person, it's like, I mean, it all boils down to money, right? And mm-hmm. money on, on, a, on a very crucial level is not real. Like, even when you're dealing with, like, gold coins, it's just, it's all, it's all ultimately kind of arbitrary. I mean, yes, there's, there's a great deal of numbers and mathematics backing it up, but it's all, it, none of it is real, you know? And then when, right. when, we, when, we, when we raise that, uh, this abstract thing, this unreal thing above uh, everything else that is real in life. When we place this uh, in this this made up money above the the heads of very real people, it's terrifying and awful and absurd, right? Well, when the fantasy of this right yeah. becomes grotesque and you can't really see the reality around you, right? I mean, it clouds your vision of your ability to actually accurately sense what's going on around you. That's yeah. when I th- when I think you know you make decisions that uh, perhaps in other people. Uh, it creates a sense of disgust. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you become this person who is a caricature of yourself to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. There's something called the ultimatum game. And it's interesting. It, the premise is, okay, I have $10 that I can share with you, Robert Lamb. Okay. $10. Any way I choose. Okay. Okay. If you accept my offer, then we both keep my proposed shares. If you reject my offer, neither of us sees any of the money. Oh, wait, now what's the offer? Okay, um, uh, okay, I have ten dollars. I will give you a quarter. A quarter of the money, or just a no, quarter? A quarter 25, twenty-five cents. Okay, then what do I have to do? Do you mean you just can you can take it or you can leave it? Well, in that case, I I would take it because twenty-five cents is better than no money, right? You are so rational, but most people would actually re- reject it. Huh? Yeah, because you would think uh, like the rational thing to do is to say like, um, you know. Sure, now we're both richer for this, right? But there's a sense of injustice going on. Like someone might think that's not really fair. Like why are you keeping nine seventy five and I'm getting twenty five cents? Right. But I didn't do anything to earn it. You just you have ten dollars. You're giving me twenty five cents, and I'm and and if you give me that twenty five cents, I'm halfway to getting something out of the office snack machine. All I have to do is find one more quarter, and I'm going to be rolling in granola bar. Okay. Well, if you were a, a normal flawed person, okay, you would say. No, I'm going to penalize you for your stinginess. Now I'm not going <laughs> to, like, neither of us are going to get anything, right? Yeah. Really? That's weird, huh? Yeah. So I mean, even I mean, it's understandable. You, I, I, can totally, I can totally get it. But. Yeah, like I have, and it is, in, in a way, if you think about it, um, it's sort of a power structure, right? Because if that person has the money mm-hmm. and they're offering it to you, how do you get your power back if you have nothing, if you don't have really... Uh, any choice in the matter, right? So I guess I could I could conceivably make the argument. Well, why don't you you know you're keeping nine seventy five? Why don't you just give me one quarter more, and then I can go ahead and get that granola bar? Instead, I'm I'm tempted. I'm with half. I'm here with half a granola bar. Uh huh. Basically, that I can't eat. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know what you're going to get for twenty five cents, honestly. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not much. Yeah. You start to think about that, and what happens in your brain? 
the anterior insula starts to get activated, and this is the area associated with negative emotions. Hmm. And this has been seen by Jonathan Cohen. He's a Princeton neuroscientist. Uh, the interesting thing is that when you up the amount of money, like, for instance, if uh, if I said I have $23 and I'm going to give you $8, mm-hmm. then you start to see people go, oh, okay, well, that's that's a little bit fairer. And the the part of the brain, the um, the anterior insula, actually starts to die down a little bit hmm. in terms of activity as a way to tamp down this and say, okay, let's start to be rational about this because now the stakes are getting a little bit higher. There's a little bit more money here. And it really, I think, is very telling on how we um, make some of our decisions. Huh. So this is definitely the part of the brain that's lighting up when you've just had a dinner with the, some friends at a restaurant and you have to figure out how the bill works. Or or even when, like far before the bill comes, say when uh, the guacamole comes out or the pizza is placed on the table, mm-hmm. and food has to be divvied up. I can see that kicking in, you know, because you're wondering about how things are going to be uh, distributed out. and parsed yeah. out, and, and then how are they going to be paid for. Like, even if you're not, like, a stingy kind of person who's counting the slices of pizza mm-hmm. as they leave the table, like, your brain can't help but sort of think in, in those terms, right? Well, and they've seen this in babies. They've seen this in primates, too, mm-hmm. that there's a sense of injustice, uh, study after study, that, that people are mentally taking notes on what is being parsed out at that mm. time. Well, because, I mean, we have to live in a community. We have to live in some sort of a, a, a group, be it a primitive uh, group that is uh, just you know crawling through the grasses in prehistoric uh, times or a, a community of people who are trying to figure out how in the heck they're going to do the tip with a Groupon uh, discount at a <laughs> restaurant, right? Yeah, that's just a recipe for disaster right there. Yeah. Yeah, the whole Groupon thing. Uh, not to say that I haven't taken advantage of it. It's great. But, yes... Um, you, you have to come to some sort of point of cooperation. And like you said, that's that's what really makes a society. That's, that's the glue of it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why greed sometimes turns us into a bunch of donut-seeking uh, homo simpsons. All right, we're back. Why do donuts distract Homer Simpson? Why is Homer Simpson obsessed with, do- with donuts? If we had to boil this down to a single, oh, I don't know, brain hormone, what would it be? Uh, delicious dopamine. Exactly. Just the mere thought of the donut can re- can result in dopamine uh, release. Just the, the the anticipation of rewarding yourself with those uh, delicious calories. I right? have to say, I think I might be salivating a little bit right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing the. I don't even really eat donuts, but I'm picturing that uh, that Simpsons donut with the pink uh, mm-hmm, icing the and the sprinkles. Yeah, dopamine keeps popping up in these podcasts we're doing. I mean, it, dopamine pops up a lot because it's uh, anytime we're trying to figure out neurologically why we do the things we do, because mm-hmm. dopamine is the reward juice, and uh, most of the <laughs> well, not most, but uh, a lot of the things we do are about releasing that chemical, about achieving the reward. Our life is kind of this game. And when we uh, we actually hit the points where we get the achievements, we get the dopamine. That's right. It's not surprising that it would show up here. It show, seems to have shown up in all the other sins. And it's one of these things that we learned a game a long time ago. Primitive man kind of figured out what was going on with the dopamine and, and figured out, hey, I can actually cheat and get all the dopamine I want, right? So we end up with this whole legacy of bad habits and addictions and, uh, and sins, uh, if you will. And greed seems to play especially well with dopamine because it's tied up in three of the big needs that we have in life. The needs for safety, the need for approval, and the need for esteem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need safety because we want to survive. We need approval because we want to live in a community. Uh, and we need esteem because we want to rise up in that community. And money, as it happens, can pretty much buy any of those things. You have right. enough money, you can buy safety for yourself. If you want to be approved of, 
you can buy the right clothing, you can buy the mm-hmm. right lifestyle to do that. And if you want to steam, uh, as pretty much any, say, presidential election or, or, uh, um, you know, uh, or any, ca- any kind of political candidate, uh, illustrates, you can buy that if you have enough money mm-hmm. and enough will to invest in it. So money is the ultimate dopamine inducer. If money in and of itself doesn't uh, cr- uh, fuel the dopamine, then it can buy something that will. Which makes sense, again, why people would be chasing that high with with wealth or greed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually plays into something that has been called the Scrabble strategy before. Okay. And again, we're talking about the short term versus the long term. And the Scrabble strategy is actually called the greedy algorithm. And okay. this is a, a computational mathematics term. And basically, it says that you can do well by making whichever move seems best at that moment and not worrying too much about future consequences. And in mathematics, the greedy algorithm builds up a solution piece by piece, always choosing the next piece that offers the most obvious and immediate benefit. So for us, right, that would translate to dopamine, ding, ding, ding. Okay, so in the Scrabble scenario, the the idea here is that I get a high number value tile, Uh like an X or a Z or something. I'm better off holding on to it, but instead I play it immediately, right? Yeah, because, okay. I mean, that I'm is... I'm not playing the long game. Right. It's not I'm like chess where game. you have to really consider, you know, th- uh, three moves ahead. You just have to... In Scrabble, it really is like whatever you have right in front of you at that very moment, you have to play. And you'll you'll benefit from that strategy. So, you know, the, this, that's what greed sort of falls into is this greedy algorithm. Although the greedy algorithm obviously isn't sustainable because at some point you have to, uh, you know, inhabit your future brain. Right. And start thinking about the consequences. Yeah. And I guess with human lives, uh, the problem is that by the time you start realizing you need to play the long game, there's not, uh, in many cases, there's not that much game left. I don't know. You, you tend to see that a lot. I mean, it's like, like we said earlier, it's like people end up not caring during the rich years, mm-hmm. during the, the bountiful years. Uh, which are they? They're the grasshopper, right? The grasshopper and the ant. That sounds right. Yeah, because the grasshopper. Solid days, halcyon. Yeah, the ant in the fable, right, is, is piling away for the, uh, the, the coming winter. Mm-hmm. And the grasshopper is like, woo, I'm having a great time. And then it gets cold and the ant's like, I'm set. And the grasshopper dies. It's kind of a, right, a bummer right. of or the story. Or from Citizen Kane, your rosebud. You've Wait, lost your rosebud. I don't know what, if that I can't, actually, I can't leap to that logic. I don't know if that actually plays in all that well. But I don't know. He was chasing after greed. Yeah. Well, he Pretty was. He was. Part. He is another iconic uh, greedy character. But but yeah, when we're in the midst of the of the plenty, we're not thinking about the long long game, and it's easier to think about the long game when there's not that much game left. I don't know if I'm making sense on that. No, no, I, I'm yeah. getting it. I'm yeah. getting it. If if you are obsessed your whole life with uh, chasing after the precious. Mm-hmm. And uh, and trying to uh, battle do battle with the sneaky little hobbitses for the yeah. precious. Well, the precious was pretty awesome. It was one of yeah. the rings of power. So, I mean, I, I you you, you kind of have to side with Gollum on that one. I know, but the point is that, that you could you could waste your entire life, you know, in, in obsessing over the precious, yeah, that's and true. then you no longer have a life. You just have a shiny he, object. He did get to travel pretty well, and he lived a long life. <laughs> so, so I don't know what's going on here, Robert Lamb. I'm I'm just saying, you know, don't, yeah, greedy gotcha's coming out. Don't you know hate on Smeagol too much because uh, you know he, he got to see the world of Middle Earth and you know and he and he his spoiler he dies by falling into a volcano, which is something I I kind of want for myself. So he, he had a good okay, run. Okay, so there, we are revealing something about you right now. 
and your affinity for Smeagol. Like, imagine if your if your obituary said something like, "Robert Lamb passed away today when he fell into Mount Doom." Like, that's pretty right. That's pretty uh, awesome. After chasing absolute power. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that makes it sound kind of sad. I guess. All right, yeah, you got a, You got bit. a point. All right, let's uh, let's bring over our greedy robot over there. Oh, we're done. Oh, I don't know. Are we? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, that's pretty. We were discussing. Uh, earlier, like the, the the research into into greed doesn't go quite as deep as some of the other ones we've we've talked about. Yeah, but, I was thinking about Dante. I was like, yeah, of course he's like, this is awful, this is bad. It's awful, but, it's bad, but I'm not really going to devote a lot of time to yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> same thing with researchers so far. I mean, I guess a lot of it's kind of surface level. It comes down to we want money because money makes um, a lot of things possible. It allows us to have safety. It allows us to to eat, to to have shelter. It allows us to move through life. So of course we want it. And like with all the sins we've looked at. There's like a tipping point between um, like a normal level of wanting money and an unbalanced level. You know what I think would be interesting is some research on the super wealthy and mm-hmm. wondering whether or not if you reach a, a certain point of wealth that you become more altruistic and you actually become more ethical. That is because a number of uh, billionaires have taken that pledge to mm-hmm. uh, to donate a large portion of their their wealth to charities. Mm-hmm. And there are for every um, you know miserly Scrooge McDuck type individual in the world, you can you can generally think of someone else who is using their fortune or at least a large portion of their fortune to try and do good things. Mm-hmm. And not just as a tax write off. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, I would like to see more more numbers on that for sure. Because there are there are certainly some individuals that really make a case for the old adage money corrupts and money's the root of all evil. But then there are some individuals who seem to stand apart from that and and really give us a little hope. Yeah, and and some people who I'm sure are at four way stop and they're driving a, a luxury car that that actually uh, they're not jerks. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Let me get the let Dante have the last word on this though, uh, because there's a lovely little line, and this is of course translated from the Italian, and then, and this is Virgil talking to uh, Dante. He says, "Now you can see, my son, the brief mockery of the goods that are committed to fortune, for which the human race so squabbles. For all the gold that is under the moon and that ever was could not give rest to even one of these weary souls." He says that as they're looking at the, the torture in hell. So there you go. All right. All right, now let's go over the robot. Come over here, Arnie, and bring us our basket of golden mail. Clink, clink, clink. All right, well, here's one uh, related <laughs> Here's one related to uh, one of our sin podcasts. Uh, Darlene writes in about our gluttony episode. Dear Robert and Julie, as someone who very recently went through gastric bypass surgery, I was obviously very interested in your gluttony podcast. Here's a personal perspective that may interest you. I have always been someone who suffered from extreme gnawing hunger. In fact, my stomach would growl so loudly my dogs would bark at it. A small amount of food would not mitigate the pain. Not not pangs, but genuine pain of that hunger. Combine this with an extremely slow metabolism, and you have a perfect recipe for obesity. In the months of study and research prior to my gastric bypass surgery, I read that the hunger hormone, uh, ghrelin, uh, becomes suppressed following surgery. I didn't really understand or believe it, but now about six weeks post-surgery, I can confirm this is absolutely true. Like those twin women who uh, always irritated me with their, oh dear, I forgot to eat today, uh, I find that I don't eat on a specific schedule I to forget all about food. It's a lot easier to lose weight when you are never hungry. I understand that pharmaceutical researchers have been on the trail of ghrelin for suppressor for years, but still haven't been able to nail it. So, be kind of the overweight, obese, and those who may appear gluttonous. They may have physical issues that aren't obvious. Thanks, darling. So, yeah, we you know touched on the 
uh, sorry, more than touch. I think we, we we definitely tried to stress in the Gluttony podcast that there's a lot more going on with uh, certainly with obesity and issues of of just uh, you know ravenous hunger than uh, than oh I like food and I want to eat a lot of it. Like it, it's it's, it's right. a lot more complicated than that. That there there's uh, there's stuff going on at uh, you know genetic level and that true gluttony it, it certainly as far as like competitive eating goes mm-hmm. really stands apart from issues of body weight. Yeah. Well, one of the things we didn't get into um, is something called FTO, which is a, um, a, a gene variant that is often seen in uh, obese people. And this is actually responsible for this biologically altered state, uh, much like what she just talked about in terms of regulating hunger. So, um, you know, unfortunately, there's actually a lot of stuff in, about gluttony and, and, and diets and all sorts of stuff that we couldn't get to in that podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was nice to hear from her and to to be able to sort of address that right now at least. Oh well, here's another email from a listener by the name of, of uh, Desalu, and uh, Desalu uh, wrote in to share some thoughts on the "Don't Eat the Panda" episode, but also uh, mentioned that they found the uh, "Cubed Earth" episode very inspiring, and they wanted to uh, create an RPG role playing game module about it. They say, uh, huh. "Think Star Trek, where Earthlings come from different sides of the cube." Uh, woohoo! So amped to write it. So I, I thought that was awesome. Anytime yeah. our podcast can inspire people, I am uh, I am all into it. Uh, here's a quick uh, email from a listener by the name of Carlos. Carlos says, after listening to your Rat King podcast, I came to the realization that Magneton, uh, and this is apparently a um, Pokemon character, mm-hmm. the evolved form of Magnetite, is essentially a Rat King. Uh, I linked some pictures. Don't worry. Carlos also mentions that if I enjoyed playing Team Fortress uh, back in college, I should be happy to know that there's something called Team Fortress 2. So I will have to check that out, uh, or maybe I shouldn't. The Pokemon thing was interesting. I looked at the picture. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand it, but it looked It, it looked was cool. kind of adorable, though. Yeah. And then finally, here is one from a listener by the name of Maricela. And Maricela writes in and says, Hey! Exclamation point. Uh, I'm sure this has happened to you guys. In my head, as I listen to you, I make a perfect picture of you as my imagination dictates according to the tone or depth of your voice. The little changes when you're about to say something sarcastic or even a joke. Or at least I used to until I saw the Facebook profile picture, which, of course, is that uh, just look up stuff to blow your mind on Facebook. Add us and uh, it will enrich your life. Marcella goes on to say, I got to say, Robert, you're close to what I had in mind. Or is it the other way around? But I so totally pictured a blonde Julie. Don't know why, it just happened. And now, whenever I'm listening to the two of you, uh, it's so funny to think about it, I just start laughing. Great work with the podcast. The awesome dynamics between you two uh, really transcends the mics and makes me learn something new every time. Cheers. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you have a doppelganger in Athens, Georgia, that is a blonde Julie? I did it one time. Okay. Yeah. And uh, also, I Did it one time? Did you slay her? I don't know if she's still there. Okay. Uh, but I was blonde until I was 12, you know, for mm-hmm. what it's worth. So you're, you're right to some degree. Okay. Yeah. And my daughter is, like, very Nordic looking and blonde. So, I don't know. You're picking up on something there. Okay. Yeah. But, yes, I'm a brunette. A proud brunette. Okay. And, and, but I, I still think there's something with the doppelganger. Or I thought there... No, so are you saying that, like... I am the doppelganger, and I'm wearing a wig right now. And then when I leave the studio, I, I take my wig off, and I'm blonde. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe you you were the doppelganger. You replaced you replaced the actual Julie. A long no, time you're ago. completely wrong. That I don't. You, you shouldn't even think that. There's no logic there. Don't pursue that line of logic anymore. 
Okay. Okay. There's good enough, the, uh, good right? enough for me. Okay. Seriously, I am Julie. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> well, well, if you would uh, if you would like to interact with me or Julie or potentially Julie's doppelganger, you can find us on Hello. Facebook and Twitter. Uh, again, on Facebook, we're Stuff to Blow the Mind. Uh, find us on there. Like us. Follow the feed. We uh, update it with all sorts of cool stuff about current and upcoming episodes. You know, we'd love to get feedback from you guys as well. Uh, on Twitter, you will find us under the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.